while you're still standing, if you'll find Luke chapter 23, uh, starting in verse 26, as we uh, continue our series in Luke. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. I'll read for us through verse 43 as we come then to the crucifixion of our Savior. And so hear then with all reverence God's holy word. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind him and behind Jesus And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him that read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? (laughs) Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Lord, would you bless and add your understanding by the work of your spirit to the reading and now preaching of your word. We would see Jesus, and I pray that we would by your spirit's power. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross, in preparation for a communion service in 1707, uh, When I survey the wondrous cross is considered one of the finest hymns ever written, and it's one of the first known hymns to be written in the first person, emphasizing personal religious experience, uh, even on top of our, our, our wonderful emphasis on doctrine, obviously. Uh, Luke, in one sense, gives us many witnesses in this passage to the cross of Jesus Christ. Many people were there. Many people saw. Many people surveyed the cross. But not everyone would call it the wondrous cross. 
And we see the crowds, we'll see the daughters of Jerusalem, we see the Jewish leaders, we see the Romans, we see the criminals. And each of them see what's happening, but each of them by their words tell you what they think of it. And so my question for you this morning is, is this the wondrous cross? Have you come to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died? As Watts will have us sing after the sermon, we will sing, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Would you come with me then? I invite you to come and survey the wondrous cross of Jesus Christ. Even as we look in our four points, if you want to follow along, there's fill-ins if that helps you. And each one will focus on a different person or a different group and what they say and what that reveals. And so come survey the wondrous cross. But we look first, number one, at the lament of the people. At the lament of the people. We see in verse 26, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene as he was coming in from the country. And they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. We don't make it a main point, but it's interesting that Simon is another figure that we see who sort of got mixed up in things in a way that I'm sure he didn't wake up that day thinking that he would be asked by a Roman official to carry what would have been probably just the cross beam, so the horizontal beam, from a certain location all the way here to, we'll see, the place of the skull. Uh, Simon of, of Cyrene would have been, you know, Libya. We believe this would have been a Jewish man here for Passover, uh, like so many of the Jews that were gathered. He came to worship God, to, uh, to have Passover. He certainly didn't come to help bear the cross of a convicted criminal. And yet, as it were, he becomes then, uh, you know, if we think perhaps he became a believer after this, the first to uh, follow Jesus' words, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's interesting, in the other Gospels, we see that Jesus did carry his own cross for a certain amount of time. And we know from Roman law at the time, that was a requirement. The criminal was meant to carry their own cross. And yet, a detail that Luke didn't dwell on is that Jesus, before this, has been what was called a scourged. It was the 40 lashes minus one that would often bring someone to the very brink of death in and of itself. And so Christ did bear his cross for a certain time, but the Roman officials pulled in Simon uh, as in his human weakness he was unable to go on with it. Now, you see Simon, but then you see the, the group that's lamenting, but even those that are called the daughters of Jerusalem. It says, There followed him a great multitude of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. And Jesus turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. It's, it's interesting. We think that it's very possible that there was a group of women who would uh, even professionally, as it were, would come when, uh, when it was a time of, for a funeral procession or the morning before and after. They would sort of help the people in, in, in their public mourning and lamenting in the same way that we might have a choir or someone sing at a, at a funeral. And 
they're mourning for Jesus, but Jesus turns to them. I mean, he's about to face the cross, but he turns to them and says, don't, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Sort of shocking words of Jesus at this point, right? He's, he's on the way to the cross. It would be fitting that they would weep for him. Uh, but even here, he has concern for them and for the people of Jerusalem. Jesus entered Jerusalem weeping for Jerusalem. <laughs> that Jerusalem didn't know what they had in front of them, the Savior of God's people, the Christ, truly the King of the Jews. They didn't know it. And he wept for them. And in one sense, he weeps for them here too and reminds them of the judgment to come. If they will not repent and, and, and see what's happening this day as glorious in God's sight, ultimately. We think back to Luke 21 and other passages where um, Jesus says, Alas for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. We, we've seen how this most readily is going to come in 70 AD, as even historically wrath comes upon Jerusalem. And the disciples flee Jerusalem and, and spread the gospel. Uh, but even that is just a small picture of the judgment to come for those who will continue to reject a Jesus. And so he's saying, weep for those, not only the physical judgment coming, but for the judgment to come, uh, for those who would continue to reject me. And so he gives, as it were, a, a shocking beatitude. Remember the beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, but here Jesus sort of shockingly says, blessed are the barren in the wombs that never bore. Uh, he's, he's purposely reversing, you know, we just saw a few weeks ago, Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Uh, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And Jesus is showing the, the shocking nature of what's about to happen by giving this, this dark beatitude, as it were, this word of warning. Blessed are those who have no children in that time because of what is about to come. Uh, when the Almeida fires hit a few years ago, it, it was hard on everybody, but uh, certainly as we checked in with people in our church, we, we, we were blessed to have a similar prayer list of those who were about to have babies or had just had babies, and, um, and coordinating the details of getting out of town or going to a family member in the midst of caring for young ones was, was hard. And yet that's nothing like what the Jews would experience and then, uh, even then. And, and Jesus puts it this way. He says, if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen uh, when it is dry? Now, there's a few ways we might interpret that, but I think you instinctively know. He's saying if, if, if what you're about to see, the cross, my dying, my being mocked, if if this is happening when, when the wood is, is green, what about when things get worse? I, I think Jesus is saying this. If, if you think things are bad now and worth mourning for, just wait until then. Wait to see what men will do to one another. More than that, just wait to see what happens when God's wrath is justly doled out on an unrepentant people. Like dry wood that sparks up. Jesus warns them of the judgment to come, but in so doing speaks of the judgment he is about to endure on the cross. 
We saw a few verses back that Isaiah 53 is on Jesus' mind and on Luke's mind, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, that Christ's soul makes an offering for guilt, that he will make many to be accounted righteous and bear their iniquities. And so come, survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory experienced the wrath of God, on which he took the judgment for those who would believe in him, a come survey this wondrous cross. Number two, we, we looked first at the lament of the people. Now we look at the prayer of the Savior. And we see words from Jesus' own lips. We've, we've spent some time in the past looking at what's called the, the last sayings of Jesus on the cross. And, and, and a few of them are included here in Luke. And certainly this is, this is one of them. We see... Um, uh, we first see in verse 32 that uh, you know, the, there's two criminals put to death with him. We'll say more about that in a moment. We see in verse 33 that they come to a place that is called the skull. Um, in Aramaic, this would have been called Golgotha. And in Latin, this would have been called Calvary. Well, not would have been. Later would be called Calvary. And it's where we get the term Calvary from. It, it refers to this place where people were taken uh, to be executed by crucifixion. And so we don't know if there was something in the shape of the area, there was something like a skull, or certainly the connotation of death is, is, is ringing in the air as Jesus is brought uh, to this place. And yet for the believer, it's, it, it, mysteriously, it's, it's a place of beauty because of what Christ did for us. There's a sort of modern hymn that goes like this. My heart is filled with a thousand songs proclaiming the glories of Calvary. With every breath, Lord, how I long to sing of Jesus who died for me. Lord, take me deeper into the glories of Calvary. Right? This is Christ's humiliation. This is the lowest point, and yet even here uh, we see the glory of the God who is working all things to save his people and for his glory. And Luke gives us this one line, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. This, this one line, he doesn't zoom in and define what crucifixion was. He doesn't give us details. Of course, we know from, uh, from history and from what we see in the Gospels uh, that there would have been a, a, a vertical pole Uh, There would have been a horizontal. We're not sure if it would have looked just like this or if there would have been the horizontal would be all the way at the top to be more of a sort of a capital T shape. Uh, But this was a means of execution by the Roman authorities. The hands and the feet would be nailed, often tied as well to the crossbeams. And death most typically came then by asphyxiation and exhaustion after hours and hours on the cross. It's helpful for us to know some of the detail to say, what what did Jesus even physically experience? And yet it's it's interesting. One commentator puts it this way, crucifixion was a slow and painful death, but it's noteworthy that none of the gospel writers dwell on the torment, the physical torment that Jesus endured here. Uh, The New Testament concentrates on the significance of Jesus' death, uh, not simply on harrowing our feelings, and, and then that same writer says the New Testament then becomes sort of a commentary on what was happening on the cross. What was happening during the, crucif- during the crucifixion? And of course, we would say, as we saw in Isaiah, that he was bearing the sins of his people. 
that God is holy and just and perfect. That our sins, and we are all sinners in the sight of God, deserve death. To put it bluntly, they deserve crucifixion. And Jesus was bearing that for the sake of his people. And this one event then would have ripples throughout the rest of the life of the church, the rest of human history, so that the saints in glory sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. In the same way that someone who's, who's rescued dramatically from the river, you know, from the jaws of death, as it were, their life is never the same. That paints how they see everything the rest of their life. So much more, the death of Jesus Christ then sets the agenda for the rest of our life. And that gets calcified here in verse 34. Jesus' prayer, the prayer of the Savior when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This, this reminds us of Stephen's prayer in the book of Acts when he's being stoned to death. He prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he breathes his last We have to ask, what exactly did this mean? Who was Jesus praying for and what did it mean? And we could certainly spend some some time here, but I believe that what Jesus is praying here is that, or let's put it this way, what would it mean for someone to be forgiven by the Father? Uh, It means that they uh, would have their heart transformed by the Holy Spirit. It means that they would see Jesus for who he is that they would put their trust in him, uh, that they would cry out, forgive me, a sinner, uh, that they would put their trust fully in Christ, that they would, to use the Bible's terms, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. I, I believe that's what Jesus is praying. He's praying, Lord, would you work that they would be forgiven? Because we know that not everyone present, that wasn't the story of everyone present. Some continued to disbelieve. And yet we know of others. We, we have to assume, if you get to the book of Acts, uh, Peter puts it this way. He says, God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's speaking to people who were there. And he says, you crucified him. And I believe Jesus was praying for them because it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus was praying even for those who were crucifying him, that they would come to repentance. We saw it a few weeks ago, you know, that Peter's faith on a human level seemed to maybe have faltered, but Jesus said, but I have prayed for you, Peter. And that's the testimony of every Christian. I would have been among the scoffers and continued to be, but Christ prayed for me. He interceded for me. He prayed that I would receive the very thing that he was purchasing on the cross. And so come survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory prayed for even you. Number three, we see the blasphemy of the many. The blasphemy of the many. Uh, we see the rulers in verse 35. You know, the people are watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
Uh, we see the Romans in verses 36 through 38. They, they give him sour wine, mocking him. They say, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Uh, there's an inscription over him, which Pilate is not uh, relieved of guilt of having that place there. This is the king of the Jews. Uh, in other gospels, he's asked to take it down by the Jewish rulers. And he says, what I have written, I have written. So, so much for washing his hands, right? The mockery is written, it's spoken by the Romans. And one of the criminals says, it railed at him, which is that word blaspheme. He blasphemed him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So we have a threefold mockery of Christ. Uh, Scott, one of our elders a few weeks ago in the Sunday evening, uh, brought out this quote from Mark Jones, an author. He says, flipping this three, his threefold office as our Redeemer and showing further his humiliation, Mark Jones notes that upon the cross, his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king was blasphemed. And yet, these same blasphemers are actually, there's a threefold declaration publicly of who Christ is as king, as Christ, as savior. As one author puts it, uh, all people will certainly carry out God's purpose, however they act, but it makes a difference to them whether they serve like Judas or like John. Do you understand that? God's purpose in glorifying himself and saving his people, working all things for his glory, will be carried out even by those who continue scoffing, who continue hating. And here he even uses their scoffing words to publicly declare who Jesus is. But it makes a difference to the person whether they do that like Judas or like the scoffer or do it like one who loves Christ and who willingly and, 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 and delights to do his will. Another author says, in the space of five verses, Jesus is referred to as the Christ of God, the chosen one, the king of the Jews, and the Christ. He is the Christ of God, chosen, anointed for this very task. So they mock and say, come down, but he can't come down. This is why he came. He is the king of the Jews, and he will reign in power, and judgment will come upon those, even that reject him. He will reign again in power in the resurrection. Again, he can't come down from the cross. He could. He, he had the authority to call angels upon angels to come. But judgment on them was for later. For now, judgment was being placed on Christ for the sake of his people. He could not come down. He is the Savior Saving his people. The criminal doesn't mean what he says, save yourself and us. He means it mockingly, but he is saving his people. And since he's saving his people, he must remain, willingly remain, to finish the work that he came to do. And this is in fulfillment of Scripture. And if you reflected on Psalm 22, you would see all the parallels the division of the garments, all of it, the mocking. One author puts it this way, as in, the, in the, as in the entire passion narrative, Luke emphasized the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus died between two criminals in fulfillment of Scripture. His garments were divided by lot in fulfillment of Scripture. He was mocked 
in fulfillment of Scripture. Rather than see these as a creation of stories by the early church in order to fulfill Old Testament text, it's more reasonable to understand the process as having occurred in the reverse. In other words, the events of the Passion caused the church to discover in their readings of Scripture prophecy upon prophecy that spoke to these events. And so come survey the wondrous cross on which Christ fulfilled all things for you. Number four, we see the plea of the redeemed. Number four, the plea of the redeemed. Right? Verse 39, the one criminal just rails at him, blasphemes. The other criminal rebukes him. Again, on the right and the left, he's, he's dying on the cross as, as Jesus is. He says, do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly For we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We saw a threefold mockery of Christ. We we saw that that was unintentionally a threefold declaration of who he is. This is one of three declarations of Christ's innocence that we see in this beyond just this passage, before and after it. First was Pilate multiple times saying he's done nothing wrong. Christ has done nothing deserving death. Now here the criminal says he has done nothing wrong. And then we see in verse 47, we'll see next week, Lord willing, uh, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And so we have our two to three witnesses that are required to witness to the truth of an event, that Christ is innocent. And within that, we have the plea of this criminal who ends his day in Christ's presence in paradise. Unlike the rulers, unlike the scoffers, some of who would later repent, his words reveal that his heart, he found repentance and salvation even here in these fateful hours. And we see here that a profession of faith, receiving Christ as Savior is is not easy, but, but it is simple. It's not simplistic either. It, it, it's not easy. It demands your life, your all, and you actually can't do it when you're dead in your sins. You need the Spirit to enliven you. It's not easy, but it is simple. Look at what the, the, the summary of, of what the criminal, what, what's his profession of faith? Number one, Christ is innocent. Number two, I am not. I deserve this death. And number three, Christ, remember me. And remember me not in the sense of call me to mind, but in, in the sense of the Old Testament of remember me. Uh, be gracious to me, save me, rescue me. His, this prayer echoes Luke eighteen thirteen. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Friend, receiving Christ is not easy, but it is simple. It demands your life and your all, but it doesn't demand a certain IQ or a certain ability or a certain background or a certain church that you grew up in or a certain... I'll be careful... 
What did the thief on the cross know? Could he articulate certain complex theological concepts or did he know his Bible better than the rulers? Probably not. Did he know the five solas of the Reformation? No, but what did he know? He knew that Christ was Christ. He knew that he was the innocent one. He knew that he was not. He knew, I deserve this death before a holy God. And he knew that if he prayed, remember me, it wasn't just wishful thinking. This was Christ, the king who has a kingdom, and I just want to be where he is, and he has the power to bring me there. So how about you, friend? Have you believed that, that Christ is the innocent one, that you are not? And have you prayed to him, Christ, remember me, rescue me, save me, have mercy on me, a sinner? I pray that you would. Come survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory truly won salvation for all who trust in him. We have seen today that we are, as we've surveyed the wondrous cross, we saw the lament of the people, the judgment that would come on those who wouldn't repent, but the judgment that fell upon Christ himself. We saw the prayer of the Savior who even prays for those who would receive him, the blasphemy of the many who accidentally, as it were, declare who he is, the plea of the redeemed. And we see then that to survey the wondrous cross is not just something we do leading up to when we come to faith. It's not just something we do only on Good Friday once a year. But we do this forever. Again, in glory, we will say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's return then to that first person hymn of Isaac Watts. If perhaps he was answering this question, what's the proper response? We've surveyed the wondrous cross. How do we respond? Were the whole realm of nature mind, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.